Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is Occam's Razor by Joe Clifford. Former top flight prospect Oz Reyes heads security for Coastal Sports Network in Los Angeles. On the eve of the awards show, his boss, Delma Dupree, summons him to Miami. At her waterfront mansion, Oz encounters a chaotic scene with police and emergency vehicles. Delma's oldest son, Jackson, explains his mother has recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was picked up by the police wandering during the night. At first, Delma seemed fine to Oz, but when she asks him to look into her adopted son's seemingly airtight conviction, her symptoms begin to show. Despite Oz's polite refusal, Delma insists he store a file which she swears contains the truth of who really committed the crime. Once Oz is in possession of the file, an open and shut case suddenly seems less so, as forces seen and unseen conspire to take him down. He dives headlong into South Florida's glitzy and glamorous underbelly, uncovering a Miami crawling with shifty detectives, rogue assassins, and hard-drinking sexual deviants, a world where no one and nothing is what it seems. Occam's Razor by Joe Clifford is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite independent booksellers. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start over. This is season one. The first half of the season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from the previous. You truly have to listen in order for the story to make sense. Start with the episode called, What a Lovely Corpse You Have, and catch up to us from there. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of characters in the show notes to keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death bearing the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond and her Italian guide Carlo Giancarlo find the hitman who killed Gavriel. Hugo Franzetti was a thief and a blackmailer and nearly as dead as long as Gavriel. This week we pick up as Diamond and Carlo follow the money. Today's story is about bad timing, thinking laterally, and writing your own story. This is episode 8, This Little Piggy Went to the Bank.
Hansel and Gretel blindfolded and high on sugar crack could have followed Hugo Franzetti's trail. He had set up a P.O. box at a mailing store in a town close to his grandmother's house. Carlo flirted with the girl who worked there for only a month and, well, she didn't know Hugo from Hansel. He walked out with a stack of envelopes and the girl's phone number. The payout? 60 envelopes with 100 to 1,000 euros each. Stop number two was Hugo's apartment in Rome. It wasn't in a prominent neighborhood where we would have been noticed if we strong-armed our way in. Didn't matter. There was no need for huffing or puffing or blowing anything down. Mama Franzetti had given us the key. When we'd gone back for the deep sweep, she cried on Carlo's shoulder and she asked us to bring her grandson home. Mama Franzetti may have looked like a country mouse, but she knew what the cock was doing in that hen house. Hugo's building was built before the living were born. The trials and tribulations of its occupants were steeped into the plaster walls and periodically painted over to make room for the new ones. Hugo lived on the top floor. The three flights and a narrow stairwell had me resting my hand on the butt of my borrowed gun. Hugo's apartment was a single large room divided into distinct areas. Kitchen, living room, painting room, playing room. The walls held unframed pencil sketches of a baby, of the neighborhood, and of animals. A small collection of baby toys sat in a box under a sunny yellow blanket. Three doors opened off the main room, bedroom, bathroom, and terrace. I got the computer, Carlo said, beelining for the Ikea-style desk. The desktop sat on the floor beneath, kept company by a milk carton filled with papers. The space was lived in. A peek in the fridge said this apartment was inhabited by the living. This isn't Hugo's place, I told him. Carlo thumbed through a stack of mail on the desk. Well, all of these have his name on them. He's been dead for a year. Heavy footfalls in the hall alerted us. A second before, somebody put the key in the door. I sprinted into position behind the door, drawing my weapon en route. Carlo turned off the computer screen and flattened himself on the floor behind the couch. The door opened. A body entered. I planted said body against the hard plaster while blistering Italian filled the room. Carlo was on his feet, shouting at the woman. She was tall, nearly as tall as I was. But there was nothing to her. Dixon had felt the same when I took his trespassing ass to the ground. This was a girl. It's a kid, Carlo. What the hell? Carlo waved at me to shut up. I guess two pissed off women were more than his Roman ass could handle. I tried to pick up their conversation. Damn it, not understanding Italian was really getting to be a blister on my butt. Her name is Valentina, he said. Hugo lets her live here. Carlo raised a brow to me as he took a firm grip on her upper arm and escorted her to the couch. Well, ask her when she saw him last. I speak English. She spoke well with a slightly British accent. Thank God. Valentina curled into herself, knees to her chest, and arms binding her legs. She was in her late teens or early twenties, but her eyes were older, much, much older. Not trying to scare the crap out of her anymore, I fetched a bottle of pastel-colored soda from her refrigerator and set it on the table next to her. Hugo was your friend, I said. 
He let you live here when you needed a place. She nodded. But the last time you saw him was almost a year ago. Haven't you wondered where he's been? I kept my voice soft, very casual, very non-threatening. Her eyes widened and impressed with my psychic powers. Tell us about him, I invited. About the last time you saw him. She shrugged, rubbing her cheek against her knees. All right. Hugo was into some bad things, right? He was good to you. Dramatic pause. But he stole and he cheated. I tell him not to do it. I tell him that I'd get the money another way. Valentina began opening her posture and her mouth. He was the only one nice to me, the only one who cared. Not even my brother would help. Hugo said we would get the money, but he wouldn't tell me how. I begged him not to do anything wrong. We could find another way. He's not coming back, is he? I wish he would have listened. Believe me, so do I. I said it before I realized I was thinking out loud. So tell me, what did you need the money for? She dropped her head, forehead to knees again. I gave her the moment she needed to find her strength. When she lifted her head, there was pain in her eyes. I had a boyfriend. I thought we would marry and I found out I was pregnant and then my family. She shrugged, speaking volumes about heartbreak and betrayal with a small gesture. She wiped a tear before I could fall. Hugo, he was good to me. I didn't want to be pregnant and I found a man, but Hugo wouldn't let me go. He had heard things. He said we'd go out of the country to a real doctor. She shrugged again, this time with shame. Real doctors are expensive. He told me not to worry, but I did. Tell me about the last time you spoke to Hugo, the last time you saw him. Hugo, he had his own business and he worked. What is the expression? Odd jobs for the money. It was middle of the day and he said he finished a job and was going to go stay with his Nona for a few days. When he came home, we'd have the money we needed. She lifted her head. Her eyes were glassy with tears. He never came home. I called his Nona, but she said he left days before. She thought he was here in Rome. I didn't hear from him again. Do you know anything about this job or who hired him? I moved onto the couch, not touching her, but close, you know, soothing-like. How did they find Hugo? Why? Does it matter anymore? How easy it was to believe. For as big as the world is that we live in, we can forget how small it can be. I came to Rome for justice for Gabrielle. Now it's justice for Francisco Thalen and Mama Franzetti, and now this woman, Valentina. Palms and victims in some asshats game. This goes far beyond you and Hugo, Valentina. Help me find the bastards and I will make them pay. Valentina stared questioningly into my eyes. I filled my answering gaze with every ounce of determination and tenacity and grit that I had. She lost the staring contest, turning to the computer. Her body followed. She didn't show surprise at finding the computer on. She just turned the screen on, opened the file system for Carlo's inspection. While he worked, I went to her kitchen and began cooking. Nothing fancy, but I find working in the kitchen relaxes people, and I needed Valentina cooperative, not afraid. Under other circumstances, she would have been a college co-ed, learning to live on her own. Instead, she sat in her tiny kitchenette and started talking. 
and she talked and she talked she talked to the point i wondered if this girl had anybody in her life she could confide in i mean honestly she was pouring out her heart to a woman who plastered her against a wall and held her at gunpoint stackholton syndrome much Turns out with the salary from the small shop she worked in and the money in Hugo's account, she was getting by. Afraid of losing the apartment, Valentina told the landlord she and Hugo were married and he had joined the military. Her daughter, who was still with the sitter, had Hugo's name on her birth certificate. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, Valentina had been keeping Hugo alive. She paid the rent and the bills, including on Hugo's P.O. box and a safety deposit box. This box is at the bank. Do you know where the key is? Carlo asked. It would be small. It'd be different from a house key. I haven't thrown anything away. I didn't know he was coming back. I didn't know he wasn't coming back, Valentina said. Do you think, do you think they knew where he lived? If they found, could they find me? Do you think I should? I didn't believe in bullshitting the youth. If anyone needed to hear the truth, it was someone who hadn't experienced enough to tell fact from fiction. They could find you, I said, but I don't see it happening. Hugo was a loose end, a thread back then a year ago. They think they took care of him and everything that he knew and had died with him. They didn't care if he had a grandmother, a wife, and a baby then, and they won't care now. Valentina nodded, blinking rapidly. It had just got real for her. It was one thing to say Hugo wasn't coming back. It was another thing to say he was dead. Time for a change of topics. If you could do anything, Valentina, if you could be anything, what would you do? What would you be? The blinking ended and a slow smile emerged. Art school. I would like to teach art to children. Yeah, that seemed about right. What do you think's in it? Carlo asked as we approached the next stop on our tour to Hugo Franzetti. The corner building was three stories high and built of a sandy stone color. The ground floor was a neighborhood bank and the keeper of Hugo Franzetti's safe deposit box. Unpredictable, right? Here Hugo was a small-time thief and blackmailer, but he put his valuables in a bank. Hugo wasn't sloppy, I said. He ran his operation as a business. So, where are his ledgers, his list of customers? It wasn't in the computer, and it's not in the apartment. We took that place apart, Carlo, and it wasn't there. Sure, we'd found some more cash and some more dirty pictures in a hole in the wall. Valentina had been surprised at the find, and she was even more shocked when we left the cash. But that little black book was somewhere, and this bank was the last place to look. Carlo and I entered the bank and went directly to a very pregnant woman sitting behind a desk. He produced the key and requested access to the box. They chatted and she led us past the tellers and back into the vault room. The sharp scent of metal tainted the air. Taking the key from Carlo, she opened a two inch by four inch door and slid out a drawer about 18 inches long. She carried it to the table in an adjacent room and instructed us to press a button on the wall when we were finished. Without ceremony, she left us. Let's see what we have, Carlo said as he opened the hinge top. The glossy backside of pictures completely covered the opening. It's too heavy for just paper, he said. He used care to remove the top layer and retrieve what we were there for. Look at it, 
rings, watches, bracelets. I flipped through the pictures and yeah, they were all dirty. What about a notebook? What about the log? I'm still on the surface. Wait, I think... The crash of a door reverberated through the small space. Our prego banker filled the doorway. Her head at an odd angle drew the gun pressed against it. There was a lot of Italian yammering, but no translation was needed. We were being robbed. Oh, fuck me. The gunman waved us out. He pushed the banker ahead of us. Carlo kept his body between me and the robbers. We were marched to the lobby. I pressed three fingers to his back, and he nodded as I counted the bad guys. One in the vault, one behind us, one in the lobby. Sirens poured in, and the tension in the bank stretched to the point where we could walk on it. Larry, the lobby bank robber, he shouted in Italian, and people knelt. They were still visible from the waist up to the collecting police and gawkers. I wondered what his game was. He was better keeping the people standing. With them kneeling, he was open to a sniper. Curly, the vault bank robber, well, he stepped in the hallway and yelled. Larry responded by grabbing a man by his hair, pulling him to his feet, and shoving him toward the vault. And so Mo was left alone with Carlo, me, and the banker. Hello, opportunity. Yes, please come in. I grabbed the banker's arm, praying she caught on quickly. It's time? Damn, I wish I spoke Italian. Carlo, it's time! I put my hand on her surprisingly hard stomach. Then someone in there kicked me. Like, shit! The banker picked up her cue and she babbled in Italian what I could only assume is, My baby! It's time for my baby! Carlo snapped his gaze to my hand, his eyes wide. Now? He turned to Mo. It's time. No! Mo stopped on the dime. He shook his head. No! The banker sagged against me, wailing with mock. Sweet Jesus, I hope she's faking. Mock labor pains. The baby, the baby, it's coming now. She panted heavily. While Mo was rattled, he looked to his partners, his attention away from us. Carlo brought up the fist wrapped around the gun and planted it on Mo's temple. It took two blows, but Mo went down. The banker stood on her own two feet and looked down with contempt. The short strain of venomous words that I translated, fuck you, you asshole, was followed with spit that landed in the asshole's ear. The civilian shifted anxiously, not sure what to do. Carlo dragged Mo out of the main aisle. Another employee stepped out of line and opened a maintenance room door. A woman hissed to get our attention and then babbled something to Carlo. They're coming, he said to me. Then he issued an order to our conspirator. My baby, the banker wailed what I assume she wailed, her arms wrapped around her extended belly. Carlo waved his hands like a conductor, and immediately all the people began shouting about the baby. More police arrived. Larry and Curly hurried from the vault as sound rose to the point of deafening. Displeased with the chaos, Curly stalked to us. His gun raised to the ceiling as he barked orders no one could hear. I stumbled into Curly. At the same time, Carlo grabbed Larry by the sides of his black jacket. We both immobilized the gun hands and then went to the man. I hid Curly where it hurts. Oh sure, some may say it's cliche for a woman to go for a man's balls. But I say, work smarter, not harder. Achilles had his tendon, Curly had his balls. Well, I had Curly's balls. Carlo started with the headbutt to the nose. The cartilage folded, blood spewing like a popped water balloon. 
Larry instinctively covered his nose and Carlo went for the gun. Larry recovered and used his fist. Carlo gave more than he got, so it was Larry who ended up on the floor. But do you see how much faster my approach was? And I didn't end up with a bloodied lip. The relieved crowd applauded. Carlo bowed. So it was happily ever after time. Except for one thing. Talking to a bunch of cops was not on my to-do list. I cleared my throat to get Carlo's attention and tugged on the banker's sleeve. We need to go now. Ask her if there's a way back out. Speak English, little bit. Come. The woman led us back to the little room first, snatching a drawstring bag along the way. This woman was brilliant. I loved her. I held and Carlo poured everything in. We emptied the box into the bag without a thought for delicacy and just left everything else on the table. Fast now. This goes to the old basement. Against the wall is a door into the store next door. It's dark. Carlo pulled out a smartphone and turned it into a flashlight. Grazie. Thank you, I said to her. Congratulations on the baby. The banker smiled, her hand going around her little honey. Grazie. Be safe. The temperature dropped two degrees for each step down. The scent of raw earth, lingering decay, and dark mold put my senses on alert. A beam of crisp LED light bounced off odds and ends stored and forgotten. Desks and chairs, framed portraits, bankers' boxes. It was difficult to see the walls around all the crap. Thick white columns rose in contrast to the dark earth. The vault had to be overhead. The floor reinforced for its weight. There was activity above us now. The muffled sounds of boots beating on the wooden floor said the police had entered the building. The Stooges would be in custody. Soon they'd be searching for us. The normal people, elated because there would be a tomorrow, oh yeah, they'll rat us out. The banker may have had to give us up, and that was all right. She did her part. Here, Carlo said, turning a knob and putting his shoulder to the door. It's locked. Well, of course it is. It opens into a bank. Move, let me see. I can do it. Carlo blocked me out. Somebody was sensitive. I'm good with locks, I said, and I bodied up to him just for fun. He didn't move. I cut my teeth picking locks, he said. Ha! The lock sprang open. He put his shoulder to the door again, but it only opened half an inch. Do you want me to? No! Carlo went karate kid on the door, ripping the latch mounting from the antique frame. Let's go. The other side of the door had just as much junk piled up everywhere. It was just different kind of junk. Help me with the table. We'll block the door. We couldn't relock it. Obviously, Carlo destroyed it, but we could stall anybody thinking to follow us. The steps opened into a small hallway, and we just barely had closed the basement door when a woman stepped out from the office. She spoke in a chastising flow of words. Carlo held up his hands apologetically. Then he took my wrist and pulled me into the store filled with hats and scarves and purses. We hastily selected a hat for Carlo and wrapped my hair in a scarf. A large store bag concealed the one we carried. We slipped onto the street, glancing casually at the commotion. A stretcher was being brought out the door. We turned in the opposite direction and walked away, just like any other shoppers on any other day. A voice raised, and then it raised louder. Carlo grabbed my elbow and pulled me around the corner. Move fast. We turned one corner, then another. He liberated a set of keys from a young Roman, and we were racing away on a Vespa. 
O.J. Simpson style. What's a Vespa? It's the little sister of a Harley, a prissy little thing that makes you keep your knees together and whines when you want it to go anywhere. The Vespa wasn't as much a getaway vehicle as it was camouflage. There are hundreds of them zipping in and out around the streets of Rome, like Antelope on the Savannah, the scooter teased, dared larger but still small cars to take a nibble. My sense of direction in Rome is limited to up and down, pizza and cappuccino, but even that came into question as Carlo took us over the cobbled streets. Pedestrians, dogs, pedestrians with dogs, so they jumped out of our path, cursing us with gestures that translated across many languages. The wee-wah of sirens closed in on the wee of our motor. They were getting close. Carlo nodded. Then he cut around a steep dropping right. The scooter slalomed down a street no bigger than an alley as Carlo pulled his phone from a pocket. He gave an order, pushing as he hugged a building and put the pedal to the metal. The Vespa hummed with the vigor of a hundred enraged bees as we charged down a dead-end street. 100 meters. It's the metric system. Suck it up. The graffiti blurred. 50 meters. Doors and windows were hidden behind corrugated metal. 25 meters. The Vespa didn't balk. I dug my fingers into Carlo's hips, ready to dump us on the street. It wouldn't be pretty. The cobbles would take skin and possibly break bone, but I had to take chances over the blunt force trauma. Ahead, metal painted black with white skull and crossbones announced the end of the line. Stop, Carlo! I reached around his torso for the handbrake. Carlo pinned my arms and laughed, his voice echoing as the darkness consumed us. Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter, Welcome to the Dark Side, We Have Cookies. If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of a fancy Italian soda, you can join our Body Bag Brigade to help support our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf and published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now let's open the doors and join Jack in the piano room. That is one of my favorite scenes. It was very entertaining, I have to say. <laughs> I just, I love her cocky arrogance about working smarter, not harder. <laughs> Critiquing Carlos' style. I mean, here he is working his butt off, getting his lip busted, head butting. But, you know, she just, one grip and twist and she had her man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stereotypes are there for a reason, because they're true. That is true. It's true. Uh, I was thinking about this as I was prepping for the episode, how how much things change from the time a writer writes something until something like this. So the book came out in November 2019, which means it was finished in 2018, which means I was writing it in 2018. So here it is, you know, summer of 2020. So the story 
at least from my head, is already two years old. The part about Valentina and uh, her having the baby out of wedlock and, and her family reaction to it and stuff and, and her needing to forge a way of life. You know, those are real things, obviously, but it seems like in general things are more front and center right now with all the stuff going on socially about making assumptions about people and judging them. And that wasn't really anything I had in mind when I wrote the story. Mm -hmm. Politics change the story. It is. Does it make you think to, you know, all the time you're in English classes and stuff and they're forcing you to read a book and they say, well, what do you think the author meant here? And it's like, well, you know what they meant might not be good now, but it was perfectly acceptable back then and nobody batted an eye at it. Yeah, or at least the context of it, if people batted and I would be different than they, it is even, you know, if, if it's different two years later, you know, wh how different is it if you're reading something that's 20 years old or 100 years old? Mm. Well, I know, uh, Huckleberry Finn, that's always a fun one to get to read in school. Yeah, your dad teaches that every year. Yep. Doesn't he? I have to admit, that's a one that's taken a long time. I haven't read that since probably I was in high school. Well, this year our class decided we didn't have to read that. We got to read some new book, which uh, you can tell it's new because this guy, he's not insane, but he has this he's mentally handicapped. And it's like, yeah, if anyone ever talked about that back when Huckleberry Finn was being written, like it would have been portrayed very differently. And it, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it would have been in that he was crazy or insane. Like it would not have been viewed as a as a as a medical condition at all. I don't know. It, it just struck me about how quickly context ch can change. And in a way, it leads to some interesting conversations. But in a way, I also think it's sort of unfair to try to use those sort of written dialogue as a commentary on life now because it just wasn't written under those circumstances. Yeah, it's hard to argue things using stuff that's really old because context is completely different. Social standards are completely different. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of words that if you say in the street now, you get killed for that. Um, mm -hmm. But back then, eh, who cared? Yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the words that are really old words by our standards, even like the word gay, you know, it used to mean to be very fanciful, to be, to dress very modern, um, you know, to be happy. And it certainly has evolved in its meaning. And then there's always the ones that don't translate well from other languages, mm. like the British cigarette, a fag. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you cannot go around in America and say, I'm going to go out and smoke a fag. That means something extremely different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. that that's a problem. But in the case of a book, and it's been over two years, and it's just kind of like, I don't know. Well, and I th was thinking about, as I'm writing a story now, about how COVID is going to affect things. And... This happened with 9-11 a little bit. If you read books that were written before 9-11, you'll find scenes where people walk people right to the terminal gates in an airport. 
Uh, that hasn't existed in your lifetime. Nope. Um, so I wonder, after COVID, you know, if books are written, just the ordinary social things, if it's no longer going to be in books that two people met and they shook hands. It's very weird to go to business meetings and not shake hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole thing about social distancing and I just wonder how long that's going to last and how it will weave itself into into our stories, whether it's on Netflix or YouTube or written in a book. Do you see it affecting music? Um, well, it certainly affects how music is recorded. I haven't seen it, actually. I'm sure if you go online, it wouldn't be that hard to find, figure out. But directly, no, I haven't seen anything about it. I haven't exactly heard of any amazing new albums coming out. Oh, no, I did hear of one. So Kansas Mm -hmm. is coming out with a new album. I forget what it's called, but it's looking pretty cool. And it had to get delayed until, I believe, the middle of July because of some manufacturing problems, which I am almost certain that the manufacturing problems are because of they can't run the factories they can't do a lot of this stuff are you planning to buy it in vinyl i have no idea i'm sure it'll be expensive plus i'm not sure kansas now is not the same band that it was back when you know they first got famous it's just like we were talking about with the books right the the bands continually change (laughs) same name but is it the same band Yep, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I believe they just got one of their original members back. He was just uh, back in the band not too long ago. And so I know fans are pretty happy about that. Yeah. So some things are going back to the way they were, which is weird. Um. But now, like, certain businesses are booming, like this Grubhub stuff that we never even considered. I don't know. Our family, we just... We're not going to get somebody else to bring us, deliver us food. Even when Pizza Hut offered and they were like, we're going to deliver your pizza to your home themselves, we just didn't do it. That's true. We don't We don't like to wait. But now, there's like <laughs> millions of companies starting to pop up that are like, we'll do everything for you so you don't have to leave your home. I was reading an article in the New York Times about some of those deliveries and how they really don't do a a good service to either the restaurant or their employees. Mm -hmm. And it seems like people who use them like him, but a number of the restaurants have to sacrifice so much of their cost that I'm wondering if what's the longevity of that business model or if it'll have to get tweaked so that the restaurants and the employees can actually make money. Well, some places, I'm not sure how they're working, because some places like Pizza Hut already have a delivery system in place. Mm-hmm. Do they need that? Can they just say, no, you guys aren't going to deliver from us anymore? Yeah, they certainly can, and then they're risking how many people would order. But if this article I read made it sound like some restaurants are losing money on every order, and if that's the case, then they really wouldn't be giving anything away. It's a constantly changing marketplace, which is what makes it kind of fascinating to watch. Like, who's going to have the next great idea? Um. Yeah, well, I forget who it was, but I heard it in business class. So they're like, there are no more new ideas. There's just innovations on old ones. 
I suppose you could say that. They say th the same thing about stories, that there's only like really five or six. I don't remember. Somebody listening to this will be like, I know how many stories there are, and that it's just new variations on those. So I suppose that's true, but I, I don't know. Well, I saw this hilarious video basically describing the plot to both Harry Potter and Star Wars in like the same video because they like realized that the plot was exactly the same. Which is weird, because when you think about it, they feel completely different. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it's this boy who's lost their parents and has had to go with somebody else. And they go on this epic adventure with their buddies. I don't know. It was an amazing video. That was One difference is that Luke's aunt and uncle were really nice and loved him. And Harry's aunt and uncle were not. Well, Harry's parents died. Yeah, so did Luke's. Yeah. Well, okay, what I'm talking about is Luke's aunt and uncle died to Harry's oh. mom and dad. That's what I was saying. Okay, about. okay. So. Actual father figures, actual parent figures. Because aunt and uncle, they're not that, they're not that uh, fatherly and motherly, are they? Well, it depends on the people. Like? Well, and Luke's aunt and uncle raised him from the time he was a baby. So they were mother and father to him, as opposed to Harry's uh, aunt and uncle who got him as a, oh, I guess they got him as a baby, they got too. They baby. They just hated him right away anyway. It is the same story. I'm telling you. Wow. It's pretty great, and it just kind of goes to show how every story is the same. <laughs> oh, I don't know what my story is like. I'm, like, I'm just going to go with my stories like my story. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yep. Well, so next week we're going to be back for the next episode, and this is another pretty fun one. Welcome to the dark side. We have cookies. So I don't think it's spoiler to say that they are not going to slam into that Cullen and Crossbones garage door, or we would not be having a next edition. But I hope everybody comes back because we're going to have a good time with that one too. So, Jack, why don't you play a little something-something to take us out? Okie dokie. <laughs>